Well, I have been laying out the preaching schedule for um, the year and working in the fall in particular and how we, when we'd finish up 1 Corinthians and, and, and I could see we were going to be really close to being to 1 Corinthians 15 on Easter. So sort of working around that, laying out the, the spring preaching calendar and uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is that you know, monumental chapter on the resurrection of the dead and Christ's resurrection, our resurrection, future hope. And so we, we've kind of fixed that on the calendar, Lord willing, unless there's any more major disruptions in our, in our schedule, which is always possible. But uh, unfortunately, I didn't work it where, I could, where we could also land on the love chapter on Valentine's Day, 1 Corinthians 13. And so we're just a couple weeks off, and so I know it pains you to hear 1 Corinthians 12 instead of 1 Corinthians 13 today, but, uh, but here we are, and we'll trust the Lord's providence in that. Have you heard the... Uh, are you familiar with the acronym SBNR? We know what that stands for. Uh, maybe you've heard it in, uh, on, uh, in a news story or read it in an article that relates to culture and religion, perhaps, or SBNA. Um, it, it's, a, it's become kind of a, a somewhat popular way for folks to describe themselves and to identify themselves as being, quote, spiritual but not religious, SBNR, or SBNA, spiritual but not affiliated, uh, and that's a that's that's they're, they're, that's an attempt to kind of throw off any semblance of any institutional or formal or external religion like this, um, and and yet desi- a desire for this very individualistic, deeply personal and private quote spirituality. This is this is a. A growing, a growing uh, demographic in, in our own culture, in Western culture. A growing number of Americans embrace this descriptor for themselves. According to a Pew Research study done in 2018, 27% of Americans identified as spiritual but not religious. That was up from 19% in 2012, so it's clearly rapidly on the rise, this, this segment of our culture. So clearly... There is confusion in the culture and I would say in the church when it comes to thinking about spirituality and what that is and what it's not. We're, we're not alone in this, though, in terms of history and history of the church. We're not alone. Confusion abounded in Corinth when it came to thinking about spirituality in, in a related but somewhat different way, as we're going to see. Whereas people today identify themselves as spiritual but not religious or affiliated there were some in Corinth who were looking down on others and labeling other people in the church as being affiliated but not spiritual and that's what we have in Corinth so they, 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 they there was Christians who worshipped in the same gatherings like we're doing not in a church building like this but in homes there in Corinth and gathering of the church we talked about this last week and what those looked like but there were, there were kind of two groups within those gatherings there were, the, there were the spiritual ones, the, we could say the super spiritual haves and the less spiritual or the unspiritual have-nots. The, the lesser than group was, again, the kind of the affiliated, their part, but they're not spiritual. They're not truly spiritual. Now, I know, we're, we've been, if you've been with us throughout the study in, in, in the letter of 1 Corinthians, we're thinking, okay, great, one more issue for the church to be divided over there. 
I mean, this has been throughout the whole letter. In chapters 1 and 3, we saw they were divided over leaders. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ, and all of that. Chapter 6, they're divided and they're suing one another in court. So in legal ways, they're divided. In chapter 8, they're divided over what they could eat and what they could drink. Last week, we saw they're divided at the Lord's table and between rich and poor and all these all these divisions. So now we come to this extended section in chapters 12 to 14, and what's behind it is more division. They're divided over what it means to be spiritual. And so there's this rift between, we could say, the, the varsity Christians and, and who, claim to, who claim for themselves these more spectacular gifts of the Spirit and the JV or the B team Christians who, who lacked those gifts and didn't demonstrate those gifts in the assembly. And so this is a serious matter for Paul. So he takes three whole chapters in this letter to address it. This is the longest section in 1 Corinthians. And so the basic issues are here. Here are this. What does it mean to be spiritual? And then secondly, how are we as Christians to exercise our spiritual gifts within the church? And so that's what we're going to be exploring together over the next few weeks before Easter and, and, and looking at this together. So verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 1 he starts, and we've seen this phrase before, now concerning, fill in the blank, but here it's spiritual gifts. So we've seen other sections within 1 Corinthians start the same way with that same phrase, now concerning. So it's showing that he's picking up another one of those matters that they've either asked him a question about or reports have come to Paul. And so he's, he's writing to kind of tackle these issues, these matters that are kind of thorny in the church at Corinth. And so you could, you could almost create a table of contents by just taking that phrase and seeing the, the change of subject as Paul works through this letter. And so he's, he's thinking about every one of these issues that he's, that he's writing about kind of through the lens of the gospel and helping them to do that as a church. And so that's what we've been seeing throughout this letter. And here now he turns to spirituality, spiritual gifts. And so the word translated spiritual gifts, though, in verse 1, at least in the English Standard Version and some of the other translations, it's not the normal word that we associate with uh, spiritual gifts or tend to translate as gifts. So that word comes to us in verse 4. So you can look down in verse 4, and um, it, talks, it says gifts, but that's the word charismata. We get charismatic, that kind of thing. But that, that, that's going to come later. Here in verse 1, it's literally just something like now concerning spirituals. There's, it's not, it, it could be spiritual gifts, it could be spiritual persons, spiritual ones. It could be spiritual things, spiritual matters. It's, it's really not specific. And, and, and so the translators have to decide how to, how, to, how to translate this, how to interpret it basically. I tend to think this is just more g- generic here in verse 1. Spiritual matters, I think, is a, is a good way to translate this. It's this umbrella heading for everything he's going to say about spirituality and spiritual people, spiritual gifts. All these spiritual things. That's what he's addressing here in these chapters. And so, as he, and, he, and notice he's writing to them as brothers. Now, he's going to have, as he's already had in this letter, some kind of stinging words of rebuke and correction here in these chapters. And, and he's going to have some but seemingly harsh things to say. But we want to note he's writing to believers. These are, these are brothers and sisters in Christ that he knows well and he loves deeply. This is why he's so concerned for them, and this is why, and it's because he loves them so much that he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be uninformed about these matters. He didn't want anybody in, in Corinth to shrug their shoulders and say, well, I don't really know about that. I don't know how things are supposed to work. Does it even really matter? 
about spirituality and spiritual gifts and how we relate to one another in the church, Paul says, yes, it matters. It's vital. It's vital to have the right knowledge of spiritual things. It's vital to know how spirituality and spiritual giftedness work within the church and in your lives. And even more, it's vital to, to, that the wrong thinking about these things doesn't divide you. So he says, yes, it matters. I don't want you to be uninformed. And the first thing he does in addressing these spiritual matters with him and where he, where he starts in this three-chapter uh, answer to probably some questions that they, they're asking and questions we don't have, but we try to reproduce from what he's... We're, we're only getting one side of the correspondence here. But where he starts is he finds common ground with them. Common ground. He, he begins by focusing on what they share in common. And so remember, some in the church, they're... And this is, I think, what's behind this, this section. They're bent on always emphasizing what was different. Emphasizing who was better, who was worse. Who was more than, who was less than. Who are the haves, who are the have-nots. Remember last week, we talked about that social stratification at the Lord's table between the rich and the poor and, and eth- uh, ethnic differences and all those kinds of things. Here, this week, it's sort of a spiritual stratification. Spiritual kind of caste system based upon apparent giftedness. And so Paul holds forth here this, the, the beauty of variety in the church. And he doesn't deny, he doesn't minimize differences in terms of gifting and ministries and all these areas. No, he's, it's not it at all. But he emphasizes what the Corinthians were choosing to deny or to at least ignore. And that was, that's this, what they all shared in common. So that's where he starts. These are things you have in common. These are things that that unite you. So Paul's emphasizing here things that are true of all believers. In verses 1 to 3, we're going to see, we'll just kind of walk through the whole section, these first 11 verses. He's going to make this very clear. First, he's going to say, listen, everyone who confesses that Jesus is Lord, that's every believer, is spiritual in that sense because the Holy Spirit is in them. That's that's what enables them to make that confession. So you are spiritual. That's the only way you could ever or would ever make that confession that Jesus is Lord. It's because of the Spirit. You have the Spirit. In verses 4 to 6, we're going to see with all of the varieties of gifts and ministries and service in the church, it's the same God who, who is behind it all. In verse 7, each and every single believer is gifted by the Spirit, what? For the common good of all in the church. And then in verses 8 to 11, there are, there are different gifts, as we're going to see this kind of first of the, these listings of gifts in Paul's letters here, but they, but they all, all of those gifts come from and come through and are empowered by, and you're going to see it repeated over and over, the same Spirit. Same Spirit. That's an experience that every single individual member of the church has and so they're dividing up along all of these lines of difference the super spiritual elites the uh, not so spiritual affiliated but not spiritual average joes so you kind of have these these groups that are breaking up and paul's bringing them back to what they have in common to what they share together that's where he starts there's going to do other things in this section but that's where he begins listen Think about our context. I mean, you may look at that and you think, that's weird. 
that's kind of odd that they're dividing over these things. And maybe we've thought that about some of the other lines of divisions. Listen, our, our dividing lines may not be over gifts or at least about these particular gifts that they're, they're, they're divided over and ranking in terms of this spiritual stratification. But there is a tendency in us. It's a tendency we see in the culture that creeps into the church and shapes the way we relate to one another and we, we can kind of have this hierarchy of the spiritual haves and the have-nots. There's different lines and it's different for each one of us maybe and different depending on who we are or kind of how we see those lines of demarcation. Maybe it's by shared experiences that we have, difficult experiences or happy experiences and you know whether you're married or single, those kinds of things, education level, theological knowledge, acumen, Lifestyle choices, decisions about schooling or fitness or diet or COVID or whatever, political leaning, socioeconomic level. We have these lines. And if we're honest, we probably don't vocalize this, but we kind of think like there's a, there's a sort of a hierarchy of spirituality. And we tend to create the standards so that we tend to be on the upper ends of that and look down upon others. And so Corinthian-like conflicts and divisions, they are alive and well in the body of Christ and in local churches like ours. And so we too need to remember always that what we have in common is far more significant than the differences that exist between us. Those are the things we have in common we'll, we, will, we will enjoy and we will delight in for all eternity. This little speck of existence on, in our time on earth, it's just going to pale in comparison to those things that we joy together. And so one thing we have in common is that we are spiritual people because we have the Holy Spirit. This is where he starts. And so because we have the Holy Spirit, he's going to say four things that he see, we see here that we have in common. First, we have a common confession. We have a common confession, and that confession that we share together, it centers on Jesus Christ. So Paul starts by reminding the Corinthians, and verses one to three, or verse two and three in particular, really tricky to, to translate honestly. And so it's a, it's a complicated sentence, and there's missing verbs in Greek, so you kind of have to supply those. And again, they would have understood exactly what Paul's saying, but, you know, 2,000 years later, we're trying to, trying to figure out the, the syntax here, and it's a little challenging. But this is what I think he's saying. He starts by reminding the Corinthians who they were and what they used to do. You see it in verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, this is who you were. This is what you did. You were, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. So he's saying, this isn't up for debate. <laughs> you know this, people. You, this, this, is, this is in the record. This is not, no question about this. And by the way, notice in verses 1 to 3, uh, maybe you picked up on this as, as we read it together a moment ago, but there's all of this knowing language you, the, the, this is what holds these first three verses together. So you see in verse 1, it's uninformed. Verse 2, it's no. It's, then it's understand in verse 3. So the appeal Paul is making is for them to engage their minds. Think about this. I don't want you to be uninformed. I want you to know, or you know this, and you need to understand this. Authentic spirituality, it's not irrational or unthinking. The evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives is it's not found in looking for some purely emotional experience or ecstatic experiences we're going to see it's in it's in knowing confession it's this cognitive awareness confession of of what's true that jesus is lord all right so 
back to the back to the passage here. So part of what we know is who we were before Christ, before the Spirit worked in us. This is where he starts with them. So to these proud, super spiritual Corinthian believers, this this group in the church, he says, Remember, you used to be led astray to dumb idols before before you came to Christ, back in your pagan days. This is this is what characterized you. Because in the paganism in, in that day, in, in that time, in, in Corinth there, it was characterized by all kinds of strange phenomena. One uh, commentator called it spiritual pyrotechnics. This is, this is what characterized their, their religious festivi- festivals and all of those things, that, that, that those that, they, that were thought to have, you know, quote, divine powers, the truly spiritual ones in that pagan uh, religious environment, they were the ones who spoke with these ecstatic utterances, who who, who uh communicated to the dead, who pronounced curses, who, who uh, you know, fell into trances, that kind of thing, those shock and awe, sensational experiences, that's what to them communicated, this is real, there's substance here. So that, that, that was kind of ingrained in the culture, that that's the real stuff. And so Paul's saying to these Corinthian believers who were saved out of that paganism, out of that uh, pagan religious context, he's saying what? This wasn't real. And you know it. You know these were, these were mute, dead, worthless idols. There's no substance to those idols that you were so enamored with because of all of the sensational experiences around it. There's nothing to it. It's cotton candy. There's just nothing there. <laughs> all those seemingly impressive experiences, they didn't mean anything. They didn't prove anything. There's no substance. When you, were, when you were impressed by that, you were being deceived. You were led astray to these dumb idols. But this is, what have we seen throughout this letter? What do we see in our, in our own hearts, if we're honest? But, but the Corinthians, these genuine believers, they still struggle with this baggage from their past. Their former thinking about spirituality was so shaped by by the pagan culture, and it still shaped their views about spirituality now that they're saved and they're in the church. It was, it was leaking over into the, into the church. The, the more impressive things equal more spiritual. That's, that's kind of the equation that they still carried over into their thinking about the church. And Paul's saying to them, no, that's not the equation you need. If the greater than sign is anywhere in that equation, it's this, is what matters most is not some ecstatic experience. What matters most is the heart's and the mouth's true confession. So you see this in verse 3. No one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, is damned, anathema. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. This is an interesting verse, isn't it? I... I was sharing with our small group Wednesday night. I kind of had recall of an experience I had in college. I, I had uh, kind of an eclectic group of believing friends in college, but several of them got swept up into kind of some strange teachings in, in college. And I remember one conversation in particular. This, this verse was the appeal uh, to convince me that what she was telling me had to be true, that th- this, this verse was used as kind of a test, to, a test of orthodoxy. So whether... If, somebody, if somebody's claiming something, if they can say Jesus is Lord, then what they're saying must be true. And so she's telling me, 
about this fanatical kind of strange teaching and, and saying, listen, I'm telling you Jesus is Lord, and I'm telling you that, and so what I'm saying must be true. And she quoted this verse to me. And I'm saying, well, I'm telling you you're wrong, and I'm saying Jesus is Lord, so I must be true. One of us, we, this doesn't work. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's not, he's not giving this, this test of orthodoxy, so if somebody mouths the word Jesus is Lord, we hear that all the time from false teachers. But that, that's, not, that's not what his point is here. What he's saying is that it's the spirit that actually makes a person spiritual. It's not, a, it's not some spiritual experience. It's not some spiritual gift or, or anything like that. All Christians are spiritual because of their confession of faith in Christ. And how is it that we come to confess that Jesus is Lord? It doesn't happen apart from the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying. In other words, before the Spirit worked in us and opened our eyes to see who Christ is, we were all rebellious idolaters. We were. We rejected Jesus. We rejected his lordship. We, he was anathema to us. Whether we said the words or not, whether we called him cursed or not, that was the true confession of our hearts. The whole world is set in opposition to Jesus. But when the Holy Spirit invaded our hearts, when, when, when he made us new creatures in Christ, that name Jesus, which was once a, this, this word of rejection and rebellion became to us all of a sudden this name of adoration and, and, and glad-hearted faith and submission. It's now a word of rejoicing. It's this pledge of allegiance. Jesus is Lord. And so this, this is the earliest Christian, this is the earliest recorded Christian creed. Jesus is Lord. This was probably that probably connected with baptisms in the early church. This was what they're saying. It's full of meaning. Jesus of Nazareth, this man who walked among you, who, who you saw, who you beheld, who suffered, who died, he is Lord. He is Yahweh. All that was foretold of him in the Old Testament, this is him. It's a profound statement. And so listen, it's not that an unbeliever, again, can't mouth those words. Or that the devil himself wouldn't say those words. No, that's not it. But without the spiritual, Spirit's powerful working, it is impossible to honestly believe and confess this truth. Or to say it another way, if this is your true confession, friend, that Jesus is Lord, that is evidence of the Holy Spirit's powerful work in you. There's no other explanation for why you would why you would truly believe that and confess that. It's got to be the Spirit. That's what he's saying. For no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. No other way. And so the main work the Spirit does, the main evidence of, quote, spirituality, the presence of the Spirit, is that we've been freed from Christ-cursing idolatry and, 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 and to put saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have this in common. We have this common confession. It's not the spirituals haves and the spiritual and the unspiritual haves nots. The affiliated but not spiritual. No, 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 no. We we share this confession. And the only explanation for that is the powerful work of the Holy Spirit within us. 
This is our common confession. It's the spirit who delivered us from bondage to the devil. It's the spirit who set us free from slavery to idolatry so that our eyes could be opened to see and behold the beauty of Christ. He, he awakened our dead hearts. He, he opened our blind eyes. He caused our deaf ears to hear so that we could believe and be saved. No believer, listen, no believer can boast about their, quote, spiritual quest to find God. Friend, God was not lost. We were lost. He found us. We didn't find him. It's the spirit who arrested us, transformed us, made us alive to see and seeing, believe in Christ and be saved. So we are spiritual people in the sense that Paul's talking about here because the Holy Spirit has worked in us to confess that Christ is Lord. Whatever our gifting is, whatever expression that takes in front terms of ministry and service, this is where the Corinthian church was all fractured. They, they ranked one another. They divided over these things. They said, whatever, whatever variety you see, we share this in common. Common confession. Christ is Lord, and the only explanation is the Spirit's powerful work. Second, second thing he he really draws us in in terms of this is you share in common is there's this common source common source that the the gifts we have as spiritual people however impressive or mundane they may seem to us they come from the exact same source that source is the triune God verse 4 now there are varieties of gifts but the same spirit there are varieties of service but the same Lord there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Now next week we're going to see later in this chapter that Paul develops this beautiful imagery and this metaphor of the body when he comes to explain the variety and the diversity of gifts. And, and so we're going to really work through that next week and give emphasis to this part. There's one body, many parts. It's not you know that there's inferior and superior parts. No, we are all needed, all necessary but before he gets to that imagery, which is what we tend to think of in chapter 12, he, he, he points first to the, to the unity and the diversity within the Godhead, to the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so he says there's, there's all kinds of variety within the church. Not, not differences of importance, but variety, differences nonetheless. There's variety, varieties of gifts. This is our word, charismata, spiritual gifts. We tend to think of that. So the, the root word of this, of charismata, it's charis. It's, it's grace. These are grace gifts. That's the idea, that what God gives us, he gives us because he's gracious to us. We don't deserve them. We didn't earn them. We didn't achieve these. No. So even in the word, even in the word gift, uh, this grace gift, this word that was so divisive in the Corinthian church, this word that they were so, the, the, the exhibition of these gifts, there was such a source of pride and boasting in it, and it became this kind of spiritual stratification within the church at Corinth. The word itself shows that the gifts are not about the innate abilities of the individual. It should not be something where we pound our chest and elevate ourselves over others. It should not be something where we, that causes us to admire the individual because of their gifting. No, these are donations of free, sovereign grace that come to us 
as believers. They're not intended to draw attention uh, or praise to the one who's gifted. They're intended to draw all of the attention and praise to the giver of the gifts. It's grace. It's grace. Whatever we have received, whatever gift we have, it's all of grace. Now, we're going we're gonna to talk more next week and in the coming weeks about spiritual gifts and the kind of the classic way we tend to think. And we'll, we'll work through some of that together and we'll get through the lists of gifts and all of that. But just what are spiritual gifts? What are grace gifts? Just give a, a basic definition and then we'll, we'll develop that more in the coming weeks. But I mean, just, just give you a, a, someone else's definition. This is simple. A spiritual gift is, is a special attribute given by the Holy Spirit to every Christian. Every believer has one or more of these. And it's according to God's grace for use within the context of the church. Let me read that again. A spiritual gift is a special attribute given by the Holy Spirit to every Christian according to God's grace for use within the context of the church. Now, some of these, some spiritual gifts may be related to natural gifts or abilities, talents, that kind of thing. And, and so it could be like a... Um, uh, supernatural sort of uh, enhancement of those natural gifts. But the emphasis here, it's not on something that's innate to us. It's something that God gives us by His grace. It's, it's this divine endowment this, 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 um, that from God. These gifts are from God. And, and in particular, they're given for a specific purpose, building up the body of Christ, as we're going to see. So some of these gifts we're going to see listed in verses 8 to 11 this morning. And then later in this section, we're going to, we're going to talk more about the gifts themselves. So that, but, but there's variety in these grace gifts. That's what I'm just, he says varieties in gifts. I'm just wanting to help understand what he's talking about when he says that. There's also variety in terms of where these gifts are used. I think that's verse 5. That's what he's talking about, varieties of service. The same gift may be used in all kinds of different Settings. So just the gift of teaching. It could be preaching in the pulpit, that kind of thing. It could be teaching your children. It could be one-on-one, just counseling, that kind of thing. So it could, it could have all kinds of different varieties. He's, just, he's not trying to be give a little checklist here. He's just saying there's variety. Variety in service. There's variety in how the gifts are used. Varieties of, of activities, verse 6. So all kinds of variety. Not better, worse. Not, not any of that, but different. And yet all this variety, gifts, ministry, service, it's all sourced in God the Spirit, God the Son, God the Father. The triune God acts unitedly in giving these gifts to the church. So hold that thought. That's what we see in verses 4 to 6. Now look down, though, in verses 7 to 11. You may notice this when we read earlier. In verses 7 to 11, in, in almost every one of those verses, Paul says that the gifts come not from all three persons of the Trinity. They come from the Spirit. The one and same Spirit. In verses 4 to 6, he says, the triune God, all three persons of the Trinity, give spiritual gifts to the church. In verses 7 to 11, the one who gives the gifts is the Holy Spirit. Is Paul confused? Is he, is he contradicting himself here? And he's not. He's actually teaching us something that's vitally important about the very very person and, and, and character of God, the, the doctrine of God. And so hang in here for we just, just a minute. I want, I want to unpack this a little bit. I think it's very important for us to see. And, and then I want to show you why, it, why it's important and why it matters. 
So I know sometimes there's a temptation to think about certain points of Christian truth and theology, um, and particularly like the doctrine of the Trinity, perhaps, as, as being somewhat irrelevant. Like it's, it's interesting, but it has no touch point to my actual living, where I'm, what I'm going through right now. And so we say, surely, yeah, we believe in the Trinity. We're supposed to. It's in our doctrinal statement and all doctrinal statements. But, but who really knows what it's all about? And, and Trinity's good. We affirm that. But we kind of struggle so we'll say, yeah, okay. But let's move on to things care more about. I hope that's not your attitude. But I can see that. I know that that's that temptation. But Paul wants to understand that of all of the points of doctrine in the encyclopedia of Christian doctrine, that that. that the doctrine of the Trinity is one of the most practical and the most relevant ones. <laughs> it comes up all the time. We've seen it already in this letter. And let me show you why. And it's this, that Paul's not contradicting himself by saying that all three persons of the Godhead give gifts to the church and then saying that the Spirit in particular gives gifts, gives gifts to the church. He's teaching a principle we find throughout Scripture, and it's this, is that any work done by one member of the Trinity is simultaneously the work of all three. And sometimes the work of all three persons is assigned particularly to one. And so, it's, so we're not to understand that when, when one is mentioned, the others are totally excluded. And no, all of the works of God are done by all that God is all the time. And so, so sometimes we speak about God the Father is the one who creates and God the Son is the one who, who redeems and God the Spirit is the one who sanctifies. And that's perfectly biblical language and useful language and, into, and it fits with what's revealed in Scripture. So long as we understand that, whenever we say that, we're not denying that the Son is also creator and sanctifier. And the Spirit is also creator and redeemer and the Father is also redeemer and sanctifier. And, and so all the works of God are performed by all the persons of God indivisibly and yet in such a way that the distinctness of each person within the Trinity is preserved and is upheld in, in a beautiful, profound mystery of one in three and three in one. All right, with me? Have I lost anybody yet? Falling asleep? I hope not. All right, let's keep going. And so you say, why does that matter? Who cares? This mysterious, hard to wrap my mind around uh, truth of the Trinity. What does that have to do with my life? What does that have to do with our church? I'm glad you asked, because we're going to see that. Because here's one place where it really, really matters. This is foundational to what Paul's saying here. Paul's teaching us, listen, if the God who gives gifts for service in the church is diverse and yet one... Wonderfully three, gloriously one. If that's true, that, that, that there's unity and diversity within the Godhead, well, then you see what he's teaching us here about this. How can we then, who have been given gifts by this God, then try to use his grace gifts for self-promotion and self-glory? To, to make much of ourselves to the exclusion of others. That is exactly what was happening in Corinth. If the church is to be a mirror and to be an echo of the, of the unity and the diversity of the triune God who's redeemed us, then the way in which we use our gifts for service will promote unity and diversity. 
It will bring us together. It won't divide us. It, 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 will, it, will, it won't make us proud, self-congratulating competitors of one another. It will cement our relationships. It will deepen our bonds of love just as it does within the Trinity. You see, the doctrine of the Trinity, it's not archaic. It's not, it's not irrelevant. It is profoundly practical. One God, three persons, each person distinct, yet that, that one is not superior, inferior to the other members, all working for the same purpose, the same will, so that when one works, all work. What is the... What is Paul going to be saying in this section? The church is to bear the imprint. It's to mirror this unity and diversity. One church, many gifted members. All the gifts equally important and valued, intended to work in harmony for the same aim, so that when one member works, all benefit and all work. All the gifts are important. All the gifts are needed. All the gifts are given by God to reflect this beautiful unity and diversity within the Trinity. It's beautiful. This is worthy of celebration, church. This is so good. Listen, if you, we struggle. We struggle with this, don't we? I mean, it sounds wonderful, and then we look at ourselves and look at our hearts, and we know the frustration, the anger, and the disappointments, and all these, all of these challenges that cause us to look sideways at one another and, and judge one another and, 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 and have bitterness towards one another, unforgiveness towards one another, uh, tempt us to be impatient towards one another. So we, we know the tendency of our human hearts here. But what Paul is inviting us to do is just, just calling us to the edge of this chasm of the vastness of God's, of who God is. He's saying, come here and bring your pride, bring your preference for self, bring yourself self-congratulatory views of spirituality. You bring all of that edge to the Grand Canyon of the mystery of God and just stare out at that for a moment. Behold, behold your God, the unfathomable depths of the doctrine of God to learn again how small you really are and, and, and then to bow down in worship before this God and rise up with renewed humility to love and to serve one another with the gifts that he's given us for, by his grace and for his glory. That's, that's significant. We have this common confession that is only evidence of the Spirit's mighty working in us. And the Spirit who's who's worked in us to confess Christ as Lord, has gifted us with all kinds of variety, but all of that gifting, all of that variety comes from the, this common source of, of the triune God, and, and we're to mirror that unity and diversity within the church. We have this in common, brothers and sisters. And that brings us to the third, third reality that's, that we share in common because of the Spirit, and this is that we have a common aim a common aim. Verse 7, you see how this, this naturally progresses. That we who are spiritual people with this common confession and gifted from the same common source, God, we have now this common purpose. The grace gifts we receive from God, they're not, they're not for us. They're not, they're not for us. They're not for, for, for me. That's not why God's given us. They're give, he's given me gifts for, for you, and he's given you gifts for me. 
We share this purpose in common. There's no, no individual purposes or ambitions. No. In terms of the gifts, and again, this is where the Corinthians were really getting tripped up, where we do too. We, we, we kind of, our, our motivations, our aims, our desires, our purposes in being part of a church, they get all convoluted, and we, we begin to think it's about me, and what am I getting, and my reputation, and my uh, esteem before others, and 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 and. And, and, and me feeling good about myself and it's all these things and he's saying no that this is all given to everyone is given the manifestation of the spirit what for the common good for the common good common good the idea is profitability for the profit not not so I can how much can I profit for myself but but for the profit of the community of the church my gifts are given to me that I might be a blessing to you and again your gifts are given to you that you would be blessing to me and us to one another. Our gifts are about one another. The greatest good of the group is what matters most. The well-being of the church. He'll say later in chapter 14, verse 12, it, he's given us these gifts for the building up of the church. And again, we're going to talk more about this next week, and certainly when we get into chapters 13 and 14, there, but there are no spiritual gifts, none, that are there just for you or about you. They're about others. The purpose of the grace gifts is we might be a blessing in service to the church body. The aim of using our gifts for the common good is something we all share in common. It's the shared purpose for which the Holy Spirit has given this, given us manifestation of himself to each and every one of us. Now, just a, another word of application connected to this. I just think there's wonderful encouragement here in the midst of kind of a rebuke but a wonderful encouragement in terms of being meaningfully involved in the church joining and being part of a local body there's there's no other place on earth where the resources that has the resources the church has to build you up in Christ Justin thanks for, I didn't know what you're going to share and and uh, start talking about slaughtering animals they get a little nervous but um, but I, I really appreciate that it was, it's a good, very practical reminder of, of the, the blessings of being part of this in physical ways and in spiritual ways. There's no place where we, where we have that benefit like the church. And there's no place where you can use your gifts for the good of others like the church. That's not to say there's no way that you can use your spiritual gifts that they don't relate outside of the church. Uh, certainly that, that's possible, but the focus in Scripture, the emphasis in the New Testament is on building up the body of Christ, in particular in these local expressions of the body of Christ, the local churches. We need, we need your gifts. You need ours. I mean, the local church is just in the, this letter. This is where believers are marked out by baptism. This is where we're unified by the Lord's Supper. This is where believers are commissioned to preach the gospel and make disciples. This is where believers gather for worship. This is where God's word is preached and taught. This is where pastors are set apart to shepherd the flock. This is where deacons take the lead in the church and serving and ministering to the body. And this is where grace gifts are able to be used in a variety of ministries for the common good of all in the church. There's something unique about the church. You just can't find in a Christian social media group out on the internet by listening to pastors and preachers and being a part of you know, a chat room or whatever the thing is now. I don't know. It's not the same. There, no parachurch campus ministry can reproduce that. 
That's, you can use your gifts in other areas, by all means, yes, but the, the focal point of the gifting is, is for the church. That's where your gifts need to be used. All right, fourth and finally. What, do we, what else do we share? We share a common experience. Be quick here. So verses 8 to 11, we find the first of three or four lists of gifts in, in, in Paul's letters here, depending on how you divide you know, these up. But clearly, as we see here in another list, we're, we're meant to see variety. There's 20 plus or minus gifts, and we'll talk about how we, how we break those up in the coming weeks here. But, but what I want you to notice here verses 8 to 11, it's just that repetition of this word, same. While the, while the gifts vary between believers, it's this shared common experience of the same Spirit giving and empowering gifts to in each individual Christian. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit to another gifts of healing by the one spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. There's all kinds of fascination, I know, with, with these gifts, with some of these gifts in particular. It's difficult to de- Determine honestly with precision exactly what these gifts entailed uh, as Paul's writing this. Because some of these gifts, I, I believe, and most of us would believe, they're, they're no longer present, or certainly not normative in the church today. So uh, I, I don't want us to get hung up there yet. We're going to deal with the gifts in, in the coming weeks, but we're, we're not going to walk through those and spend time individually right now in, in these verses here. We'll, we'll gather those up in, in later weeks. Um, but, but that's not his focus here, is it? I think it's plain by now. He's not focusing on the gifts themselves, where we tend to get you know, focused in on, like here, the controversy. His focus is on the way the gifts function in the life of the church. And in particular, how that reflects true spirituality that we have in common. And so what's very clear is that we all share the same experience of being endowed with these gifts and being empowered by one and the same spirit to use those gifts for common good in the church. That's the emphasis right here anyway. So people, listen, people who understand this, who understand this shared experience we have of being endowed with different gifts and empowered by the Spirit to use them, they're not, they don't tend to be the people that you find off in the corner filling out spiritual gift inventories and questionnaires. You know what I'm talking about? If you've been a believer for any length of time, particularly back in the 80s and 90s, you know what I'm talking about. Um, we did a lot of this back when I was in college. All these spiritual gift inventories and tests figured out. It's like the little checklist questionnaire on the back of teen magazines or something, basically. And you're just checking these boxes off to discover what, what gift you have and, and, you're, and you're, you supposedly have. I think that's light years away from the spirit of what Paul's talking about here. Um, I, I, again, I'm not saying there could be no value in some of that, but that's not what we're going to be doing in a few weeks. So don't worry. No, people who understand that they share this common confession. Christ is Lord. They, they share this common source of gifting and this common aim to work for the common good of the church. Who have this common experience of the Spirit's empowerment of their gifts. What do they do? They just throw themselves into service. They don't sit around and saying, well, you, you know, I know there's a need over there, but I'm not sure that that's my gifting. 
I'm going to sit here. They, they say, no, I, I see that there's a need over there. I don't know if I can make any difference. And I'm willing to serve. How can I help? I mean, this is, this is the posture. And they throw themselves at opportunities, at needs. They seek to serve. And as they serve, those gifts become more evident. Again, we're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks. But just be willing to jump in and serve in ministries when, you, when there are needs that arise. We have needs right now for preschool workers plug for that right now. This is not a setup. Don't worry. But I, 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 there are. There's, there's a great opportunity here for us to, to put some flesh on this. So that, uh, you talk with Sky Chandler. There, we have really no Wee Walkers class in the, in the second hour right now. And, and we'd love to see that started up again. There's an opportunity to bless families. And so uh, there's, there's all kinds of, of folks that are needed to, you know, to volunteer once a month or something like that. And some kind of rotation to, to serve and bless these children and their families. And in this church gathering. And so there, there's, there's opportunities there. Jump at that. Don't, don't wonder, this is perfect fit for me. There, this is where the need is right now. We have a need for a financial secretary. And some of you have those skills and, and, and maybe gifts that align with that. And so that talk, to, talk to us about that. We, we love that. And so there, but there's all kinds, of, all kinds of opportunities. I understand. I, I think there's this kind of tendency now with, with COVID and maybe other effects and all the disruptions of this year. I understand there's a, there's a hesitancy to commit to something like that that's routine and it's coming week after week, month after month because we've all, we've had, we've planned to do something. Those plans had to cancel because we're exposed to some COVID where we get sick and we get the sniffles and we know I got to stay back. So we're reluctant, I know right now, to say, yes, sign me up. But we, we, need, we need folks to, to sign up, and, and so don't hold back. We need you. We have subs available. We understand there's a lot of uh, disruption to schedules right now. Talk to Sky, and, and please, please pursue that. Um, let me, just one other thing this means, I think, as, as, as thinking of the application of 8 to 11 here in this shared experience, it's just this. God can and will use you now. He, he can. That you, you're spiritual. If you're a Christian, that means you're gifted. He's, he's a portion to each one individually as he wills, the text says. He's empowered you to serve for the good of the church. So be encouraged. You may think, I'm not a spiritual giant. Who am I? I don't have my act together enough yet. Maybe sometime down the road. Listen, the Lord can use you and me sitting in all of our mess, <laughs> clinging to Jesus. Someone else is sitting in all of their mess, and all we, and we're pointing them to Christ. That's using, using gifts and the power of the Spirit to bless, work for the common good. Sometimes we, we think in categories, where, where, where are you serving? I know if I ask that question as a, as a senior pastor, people think, well, I'm, I'm on this committee, and I'm filling this slot, you know, whether it's nursery or whatever. And, and listen, we need slots filled. We need people sitting on teams, but that's not the sum total of ministry. That's kind of like... We have to have that, but, but the, 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 a better question is, who are you serving? Who are you serving? Whose life are you speaking into? Who are you walking alongside, pointing them to Christ and hope in Jesus and rest in him? Saying, you know, I'm struggling too. Let me show you where I found, where I found help. It's in the gospel. Let's look there together. I mean, this is, most ministry is informal. Most ministry is off the radar, but it's critical. All right, so what is he saying? To the fractured church at Corinth that was divided by who lived on what side of the spiritual tracks, 
that ran through the church, the spiritual haves, the spiritual have-nots, to that church, to Baraka Bible Church with our, with our own fault, uh, fault lines running through our assembly, oftentimes mirroring those that run through the wider culture. What are we doing? He's calling us back to what we have in common. Common confession, Jesus is Lord. Common source of our variety and our differences, our gifting, ministry, service, the triune God common aim, the, group, the good of the group, the church, not a name for myself, not pers- personal satisfaction, but the good of others. Common experience, the same spirit who empowers us. Running through, through all of these commonalities is who? It's Christ. It's Christ and his cross. This is, this is foundational. What, what, is it that, what is it that God has done to join us together, to make us one when we were so divided and so hostile to one another and in such enmity to one another. What has he done? He's, he's made us one. He's given us so much in common. What? How? How has he given us all this in common? By reconciling us to one another in Christ through his death. That's what Scripture tells us. We who were at enmity with God, at enmity with one another, have been reconciled together in Jesus. He suffered alone that we might be joined together now and for eternity. We are are drawn to Christ. If you're puffed up, if you're looking down your long nose at others who are less than you in your estimation, consider Jesus. Look to him. It will have a humbling effect on your soul. If you're discouraged, if you're feeling you have little or nothing to offer to others in the church, look to Christ. He came, he suffered, he died, he rose, he ascended, Paul says in Ephesians 4 to give gifts to you, to the church. He, he did it at the expense of his own life. Look to him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as a church, you would, you would help us. We know, as we've said over and over this morning, the tendency of our hearts, God, to look inward, to look uh, beside, our, beside our, one another, Lord, at one another with suspicion, with, um, with uh, condescension towards one another, elevating ourselves or deprecating ourselves and thinking we're more than or thinking we're less than others, Lord. And, and you're calling us today by your spirit to look at what we share in common we share in common. Thank you, Lord, that we confess, Jesus, you are Lord. That is the work of your spirit to free us from idolatry and make that the true confession of our hearts and our mouths. You, thank you that you have uh, given us this common source of every gift we have, all of the beautiful variety in, in yourself. Thank you that you've given us this common aim of working for the good of one another. And Thank you that we share this experience same spirit working in all kinds of different ways to gift us and empowering us to, to love and bless one another. We thank you for these things, Lord. Give, give um, help to us now that these truths would sink deeper and deeper and deeper into the, to us as individual members of this church and to us together as a church body. And it would, it would, it would have a, a, a drawing in effect and unifying effect among us, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.